Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our new listeners. So glad to have you. To our old listeners, thrilled to have you back. I'm Tzvi Hirschfield. It is my pleasure to be learning some Torah today with my colleague and fellow teacher and my supervisor, everyone, who is the director of the Pardes Year Program, Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer-Kasoy. Welcome, Mish. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. So we are looking at the double Parsha of Matot Mase. We are completing the Book of Bamidbar. A lot is going on in our story, and there's one story in particular that you would like to focus our attention on today. I'm in favor of the happy ending, but I want to do two things today. I want to try to start with the traditional reading of the story, and then I want to move to, I think, a more compassionate reading that highlights a more optimistic reading. But I want to start off by laying out the way it's traditionally read. That is great, especially because optimism, I don't know if that's been a common theme for us in these podcasts. We have to go back. (laughs) We tend to lean more into the intense and little scary types, but that's great. Optimism is wonderful. So give us a quick summary. Where are we in the story and what is going on? The story starts with Mikne Rav Hayalif God. Bnei Ruvain and Bnei God had tons of cattle, Mikne, possessions from Koneh. And it ends with Vihineha Makom Makom Mikne. And behold, the place where they are in Eretz Gilad is a Makom Mikne, a place of cattle. And it begins and ends there. It's all about the cattle, my friends. And that causes Bnei Ruvain and Bnei God to turn to Moshe and say, hey, what's this all about? Do I really want to go into the land of Israel? I've got it great right here. And this is newly conquered land, right? They have just come in and conquered this land of Gilad. And so now they're looking, saying, hey, I got all this cattle. Look at all this space. This is good. I do not need to keep going west. That's right. And they turn to Moshe and say, I don't need to go west. And Moshe doesn't go over well with him. I think they know it might not go over well because they say lay more. And then they start to say, hey, we've got a grade here. And then they pause. And there's this sort of dead silence, which is marked off by five empty spots in the Torah. And there's no answer. It's like having a hard conversation. And then Moshe doesn't answer them at all. Moshe doesn't answer them at all. So attempt number one gets zero response. We're only thinking about the body language, but we can only imagine what that's looking like. It's all there with the five empty spaces. And then Vyamru. And so then they continue and they say one more sentence. Maybe if it's okay with you, we're going to stay over here. And it is not okay with Moshe, actually. Moshe then goes into a tirade, which lasts from 
verse 6. Your brother's going to go to war and you guys are going to sit here. And then he goes on to say to them, oh my gosh, you guys are going to be guilty of bringing us back to the spies in another 40 years and we're never going to get into the land of Israel and it's all because of you and you guys are. And he calls them, oh my gosh. You guys, you are like your fathers. Tarbut anashim chataim, a culture of sinful fellows to try to increase God's fury on Israel. So Moshe hears this request. And after being with his people for 40 years, right, this whole mission was about bringing this people into the land, fulfilling the promise to the forefathers. They get the Torah, they have the tabernacle, and they're supposed to come into this land. This is Moshe's endpoint. They have this terrible failure of the spies. It's now 38 years later, and now they're trying again. And all Moshe hears is, you guys want to undermine the whole project by staying you are sinners and not just screwing it up for yourself. You're actually messing it up for all of B'nai Israel, including me. And the traditional commentaries tend to focus on that. Rashi points out that they said, well, no, we're going to stay here and we're going to build and we're going to build pens, I guess, for our flocks. And we're going to also build cities for our kids. And Rashi's like, oh, caught you. You're thinking thinking first about your cattle and only second about your children and their education. They need a Jewish education and you are ignoring that need. And they say, we're going to participate with B'nai Israel, and Moshe has nothing about it. It's like, it's not about just B'nai Israel; it's about God, my friends. And he pounds it down to them. And the Rashi says how terrible they are, how they put money first. The Midrash says, there are three matanot nivra ubolam. There are three great gifts. And if you get one of them, you get everything. If you've got wisdom, if you get strength, power, and if you get riches. But that's only if God gives them to you. But if you try to take them for yourself, it won't work. And you know what's proof of that is Ruvain God and Chatzis Shevet Menashe. And the Midrash continues. They were the ones that loved their money and they stayed out of the land of Israel. Therefore, they were expelled first. Because, you know, they were expelled first. Yeah, later they on, fall into Galut later on in history. They're number one. So the classic take here is you've got a group of people acting selfishly, materialistically. Moshe is furious, both because this is more than just being materialistic. It's a rejection of the covenant of God's plan for the Jewish people. It threatens to undermine everybody else's commitment because Moshe's thinking, oh no, what are the other tribes going to say? Wow, they get this beautiful, lush, green place for all their cattle. Who knows what I'm going to get? I might get Beersheba. I might even get Renana, right? I might end up with Beersheba. And they're going to get this. This is not fair. So Moshe's worried about the whole project. I guess I'd want to ask, from within that model, why then do you think Moshe ultimately concedes? Within this reading, why do you think Moshe ultimately gives in? That's a great question. I love your question, See, I think that Moshe sees that he's getting the best he can, but he points them out as sinners. I think that in the end, the commentators all identify Ruvain and God as rejected. It's not coincidental who they are, right? Ruvain is the rejected firstborn of Leah. God is the rejected firstborn of Zilpah, Leah's handmaiden. Menashe is the rejected firstborn of Yosef. So all three of them are sort of the ones that 
haven't been worthy of leadership. And the Torah is telling us, Yehuda Nachshoni points out that they've done five things wrong. They're greedy. They throw off communal responsibility. They've separated themselves from Am Yisrael. They don't relate to the land of Israel as Kodesh, and they don't really value the land of Israel. So they are rotten, and they become a model for us of what not to be. From this reading, Moshe basically argues the best deal he can get, as long as he's reassured they won't ruin it for everyone else by the fact that they will come to war and fight with everybody else. As long as they don't undermine the project for everybody else, Moshe figures, I might as well concede. I can't turn them around. They're not going to turn around. Or maybe, as you're describing it, maybe they're bad apples, and it's better that there's a river separating them from us. It's always suggestive to me that he throws in the half group of Menashe. That's his idea. Maybe to try to preserve a link. Maybe the Menashe tribe will, you know, their connection to their other tribe, maybe to pull them back in. But from this opening reading, Moshe makes a decision to allow these sinners to say, associate as long as they don't undermine the total project, but they are by no means the ideal, and no one is going to point to them as a role model going forward. That's right. They are the losers, the sinners, and we see that the commentaries, the Midrash, Rashi, the modern commentaries, hold them up as a model of what not to be. A bad example. But, of course, this being a Pardes podcast and you being Mishamra Kasoy with a lot of love in your heart, you have discovered for yourself and perhaps for all of us, I'm going to say, thankfully, an alternative reading. Yeah. Look, for me, one thing that I think we at Pardes try to let go of is binaries, of a setting up of a negative and a positive. And I should say, inspired in many ways by Rav Nadi Halfgad, who wrote this great book, Mikra and Meaning. There's actually a happy ending to this story, which is that all 12 tribes are included. We have a long trauma, the Jewish people in the world, of rejected sons. Some of us are in and some of us are out and creating a binary. And here, finally, we have a story in which it doesn't have to be all in or all out. And I think that especially for us as Pardes students at the Pardes community, I think a lot about how do we maintain our personal autonomy and also be part of the communal enterprise. So let me go back to the text. There's a lot of aspects in the text that point to a tikkun, a correction of previous narratives, right? We saw already that there were 10 in the time of the spies. We understand why Moshe connects and Moshe's traumatized himself, of course. The biggest failure of the Jewish people in the time in the desert, the one that cost them the most, was actually the spies and set them back, undermining the whole enterprise for 40 years. And here we go again. And last time we had 10 bad spies and two good spies. And this time we have, it seems like, 10 tribes who are all in and only two who are on the so side. So our ratio has gotten a lot better. A lot better. And Moshe, however, like goes right back there and he specifies, you guys are trying to bring us back to the incident of the spies. That's the trauma that's sitting so heavy on him. And he goes into this, as I said, 10 Pasuk tirade. I don't know what the... A diatribe, perhaps? You like that <laughs> <one>? <laughs> against B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain. And if I were them, I don't know. I've tried this with my kids. It doesn't work, this 10 Pasuk diatribe. And so the thing that's amazing is that actually God and Ruvain... I want to remind us that they are actually the second generation. They're not the first generation. They're the second generation. Moshe was there at the spies. They were just little kids at the spies. And they say, wait a minute, don't go back there. They hear that Moshe, mostly he preaches and yells at them, but he also 
there's a pretense of a question. There's something that could be made into a question. Are your brothers going to fight and you guys are going to be sitting here? And you could hear it as an accusation, but they managed to hear it as a question. And instead of responding defensively, they actually engage in a conversation. And when they engage in that conversation, actually, Moshe is able to step back from the diatribe and they engage in discussion and negotiation. And it's a tough conversation. It's not Moshe telling them that what they've done is right. They say, we're going to build pens for our cattle and cities for our kids. And we'll go, we will be the chalutzim, the frontier soldiers. Yeah, the front line, I always took that. We'll go in there first. Yeah, great. And we won't go back to our nachala. This is our nachala. Our inheritance is going to be on the other side of the Jordan, but we won't go there until everybody else gets there. And Moshe says, wait a minute. Let me point out to you, this is not just about before B'nai Israel. This is also Lifnei Hashem. And he four times says, this is about fighting before God, before God, before God, before God, four times. Eretz Israel isn't just about having a nachalah. It's also about a relationship with a Kaddish Baruch Hu in this holy land. And he points out, you have to build for your kids first. And then only afterwards for your possessions. Your priorities are all wrong. And God and Ruvain are able to hear a calm conversation. And they're able to retract. They go back and they say, right, right, we're going to go lifnei Hashem. As you say, yes, lifnei Hashem. Yes, yes, we're going to build for our kids first. And only afterwards, we're going to build for our possessions. And so they are able to accept a lot of what Moshe says. Moshe doesn't give in on everything. Moshe is very clear that what they are going to inherit on the other side of the Jordan is not going to be a nachala. It's going to be an achuzah. They're going to have a home. They're going to own property, but it's not going to be a nachala, an inheritance, really like living in the land of Israel. But they're able to somehow have a disagreement between the two of them. This is very striking. By the way you're reading it, Moshe, even though he starts out very angry and frustrated, he is still open to negotiation and still looking to educate them. I mean, this isn't just about rebuke, you guys are finished, and let's call out heavenly fire and get some punishing done or a plague and move on. But Moshe, in his own mind, I guess, sort of realizes he has to negotiate with them, otherwise he'll lose them, and that as long as his conditions are met, that they will fight for the Jewish people, they will always see themselves as before God and responsible for all those things. They can make this choice not to go into the land and Moshe will sign that agreement on behalf of everybody else that it's all okay. They can do this. I think we really have to also just give enough credit to God and Ruvain for not buying into the fight, for insisting on negotiation, for standing their own grounds. It doesn't work for us, Moshe, to go into the land of Israel. We need a little bit more space. <laughs> we need a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more individualism, a little bit more independence. But that doesn't mean that we don't care about the collective. We do care about the collective. What's good for us may not be good for the whole collective. And we think that we can hold them both. And we're willing to negotiate with you, Moshe, to try to be in a hard discussion, but civil discussion. You're not going to yell at us. You're going to talk to us like respectfully as the independent and thoughtful human beings that we are. And we are going to respond in kind. And together, we're going to come out with something that actually is a happy ending for B'nai Israel, a happy ending in which the Israelites are able to go into the land of Israel and inherit the whole land in which 
Ruvain God and Chatzis Shevet Menashe participate in that, but they also are able to maintain their independence on the side and so that everyone can have the best of both worlds and make their own decisions and still be a unified group without squashing the real need that B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain and Menashe have for a little bit more space and independence. So it's interesting. I mean, a lot of what you're saying is built on the idea that they seek an agreement. They don't just tell Moshe, this is what we're doing, or they even bother telling anybody, just stop. They want to do this as a shared decision. It's always interesting to me that Moshe does not ask God to give a ruling or a decision, and God doesn't intervene. Moshe makes this call on his own, and it also sounds like you are saying I guess there are two ways to look at this. In the first reading, Moshe is making this reluctant concession, and he doesn't think it's going to work out. No one thinks it's going to work out. And of course, the end proves it was always a bad idea because they're the ones who get sent off into exile first. What you're suggesting is that Moshe is making a fundamental decision that it's better to include these folks even if they are not living out the ideal that he imagines for the rest of the people, or maybe even more radically, he might be offering a new model of an ideal. Maybe there is another way that doesn't require living in the land. Well, I think there's something that's really important to point out is that they don't live in some faraway land. They live on the east side of the Jordan River. And if I take you back to the Brit Ben Tarim, and to the War of the Four Kings and the Five Kings. There, right in the War of the Four and the Five Kings, they conquer all the ten nations in that area, including the east side of the Jordan River. And God then, in the Brit Bain of Patarim, actually promises that land to Avraham's descendants. So part of Avraham's descendants is Esav, and part of Avraham's descendants is Lot, and they are, in fact, living there. And I love also that that doesn't paint a binary between those people that are in and those people that are out. You're still Abraham's descendants, and this land is still part of Abraham's land. And so there's a sense in which B'nai God and B'nai Ruvain in living in this part of the land, which was conquered and promised to Abraham, even though in most places it's not identified as within the borders of the land of Israel proper, in some ways it is identified as part of the land of Israel, so that we shouldn't have a binary about and I'm not making a political statement here about what the borders are. I see on your face, Svi. I wasn't even going to go there, but I'm happy but the, to. But the idea that we don't have to set up, there's like, here's the promised land and here's exile. It could be that there's a space that's a little bit more fluid and that they are fulfilling a national dream in their decision to live there. That would definitely complicate things because then they're arguing, let just this be our Nachala. This will be our piece of the land of Israel. This is the expanded land of Israel. And on that level, Moshe might just be saying, you don't get to make that call. That's not how Nachala works. And so he doesn't give into that. But that definitely complicates things in terms of, you know, even in a more granular way, who's living in the land and what do we consider the land. But I do want to come back to this broader question of looking at this issue today. A lot of folks, especially in the religious Zionist world, really point to this text, of course, as trying to demonstrate that living in the land is a requirement right? And therefore, to not live in the land is a type of betrayal. And this text raises all sorts of questions 
about diaspora Jewish identity, living in Israel. And I guess I'd like to hear from you, where do you go with that? When this question comes up, where does that lead you? Well, they will also say it's a betrayal because of mikneh. It's all about money. That's not true. When we think about what's happening today, I think it's a lot more complex. I'm not saying that materialism is not part of the decision, but there's plenty of materialism here in Israel. And I think that on most ways, my life is materially much more comfortable here than it would be in America. And it upsets me when I hear Israelis, Olim especially, putting themselves on pedestals for what they've given up and judging people in Chutzla Aretz for the way they have chosen money over. I think it's a lot more complex than that. And I think that what you also have going on in this story is an understanding of collectivism versus autonomy and individualism. And it's a very collectivist world here. Here, we don't have the luxury of identifying ourselves as disempowered and the government doesn't represent me. And I didn't vote for that. Even if I didn't vote for that government, this is a Jewish state and it's speaking for all of us. And we don't have the luxury of stepping back in a way that you kind of could imagine that we do in Chutzlar. It's in different ways. It's not our government. It's not set up to serve us. But it also gives us room to identify ourselves more as individuals and run our private lives in the way that we choose to run our private lives a little bit less communally and collectively. So these are the advantages of the diaspora, you're saying? Yes. I'd like to put into the materialism also the question of collectivism and autonomy and individualism and that there's other things that the diaspora has going for itself. Okay. So diaspora Jews can make a very powerful point that the way they can lead their Jewish lives with more freedom, more choice, less being boxed in by a Jewish government that makes decisions, that there are certain Jewish and personal benefits that they may choose to enjoy, which will say they don't want to live in Israel. Believe me, every day I wake up and I say, thank God I live in Israel. It's like a choice that is so deep in my kishkas, and I am so thankful for living in this land, even when I'm tortured by the government and the things that it does that really don't represent me. But I have a deep respect for people who make other choices. And what I think this sets up, although I don't think we should dress this story onto modern stages, because I think this story sets up a clear hierarchy between the land of Israel and the diaspora. But what it does say is just because you don't live in the land of Israel, doesn't mean that you're not part of the collective, that you don't have something to say, that you don't have something to contribute, and that you're not still part. And this is a story about how we really need all 12 tribes to be part of the collective wherever we live. And I think that that is possible, and I have respect for Jews that live in Chutzlarts. And I think that I, as a diaspora Jew, what I bring to this land of Israel, which could be a certain amount of civility, remembering to say please and thank you, a little bit less aggressiveness, certainly treasuring democratic values and liberal values. Those are things that I got in Chutzlarts that I've brought here and that I think are an incredibly valuable contribution that B'nai Chutzlarts have to bring to Eretz Israel. And that dialogue is actually a really important important dialogue, that we shouldn't put one group on a pedestal, but rather to see ourselves as in dialogue and specifically to say, I think this story teaches us about how to have that dialogue in a way that is actually respectful, that assumes that we need all 12 tribes involved, that doesn't threaten that there's going to be this unending schism, first of all, that points out that this so-called schism has been going on since before we went into the land of Israel. We were already having a conflict about whether it was possible to be Jewish outside the land of Israel and We've made it through these 
3,000 or so years, a little bit more, we can make it through this generation as well. And that if we do it the way Moshe and Ruvain and God did it, we can do it in a respectful way that will be actually very productive for both sides. Okay, so you have covered the way we should have the conversation, but now I'm going to ask you, if you were not Mish but Moshe, only have to move a yud and slide over to the end and put a hey on the end there and said, and you were advocating for the conditions of relationship that you would like to see between those of us who live here and those of us who live outside of here, what would you put forward? What are the conditions that you would want to see? I'll throw out some things that occur to me, just so you can tell me that I've gone way off base. I think it would be very interesting if diaspora Jews wanted to take on a year of national service here as part of their sort of Jewish experience for young people, not necessarily army, but some type of volunteering experience here. I could imagine we would want Hebrew language to become studied and absorbed so young Jews and even older Jews and diaspora could engage in the culture and the literature here with greater ears. I would love it if Israeli universities were more on the professional track or educational track of young Jews who live outside of the land. These are just they'd a few save things. save a lot of money if they did that. Some have, are on to that idea already. <laughs> but those are some of the things that would occur to me. But I want to ask you, since you are the feature star of this podcast today, what occurs to you? What would you want to see? You're now Moshe. You're negotiating. Okay, so look, all of those things you've described, Svi, are beautiful. I think I would come to the negotiations, not from a place of demands, but as suggestions. I think those would be great things and would be really important. I think a year at Pardes would be a really good idea for liberal Jews to give themselves the gift of feeling Israeli time and living Hef Shabbos on the streets of Jerusalem and what it means to sit in a Beit Midrash and to go to protests here, whatever direction you choose to go. All of the things you've suggested are lovely ideas, and I would be in favor of all of them. And I wouldn't set up a binary. I wouldn't set up extreme demands. I would make space for recognizing the need for personal autonomy and for difference. So I'm probably a lot more inclusive than Moshe. You're not surprised by that, are you? No, you strike me as more inclusive than me in general. So I'm good with that. I think I would be like the Moshe that got really annoyed as soon as my (laughs) demands were not being met, but I don't claim that as a strength. So let's ask the really tough question. Do we need to just accept the fact that the Jews among us who reject the land, and you can take that in any direction that you would want, They agree in the end. What happens if they didn't agree? What would have been the end result? And I guess we might be asking that question to some extent today. What about those who do not want to be included in this project? They think this project is a mistake or morally questionable or not good for Judaism. Whatever the claims are, what should the attitude be of those who want to be inside but are looking at those people? Look, I want to help humans, all humans. I think that the Jewish collective demands a Jewish collective. And Karaites have made their own decisions at various times about when they're part of the Jewish nation, when they're not part of the Jewish nation. And ultimately, Ravavaji Yosef says, because they make the decision to be part of the Jewish nation, to fight in the Israeli army, to be part of the collective, to tie up our destiny. I asked the question in that class, what holds the Jewish people together? What do we share? And we have to have some things that we share. So one thing we share is the Torah, that we all look to the Torah. But another thing that we share is a collective destiny in some form. So I think that we have to recognize that our destinies are intertwined with one another and that we should figure out a way 
I don't think that necessarily says there's only one position on the state of Israel. The state of Israel is only 75 years old, and people have been Jewish for a long time without the state of Israel. And I think it's possible to be Jewish without the state of Israel now. But I think to recognize that nearly half of the Jewish people do live in the land of Israel and not to consider that as part of an understanding of the role of Israel, given the fact that you care about the Jews and we have to care about the Jews as part of being Jewish. Not instead of caring about all human beings, but in addition to caring about all human beings, we have to have a special relationship to the Jewish people and understand that our destiny is rolled up with each other. So if you're Moshe, you're going to stand there and say, which I think is very powerful, as long as you have not given up on a special connection or caring for the Jewish people. However that gets expressed, we're still family and we're still connected. We're gonna disagree sharply and in difficult ways, and each of us are gonna feel betrayed sometimes by the other. Each of us are gonna think that the other side is bringing us to the abyss, but we are still connected by our shared connection to the Jewish people in a special way, in a way that is different than how we care about the rest of the world. Right? I care about my cousin in a unique way, sometimes less, sometimes more than the neighbor across the street, but in a unique way. And what I hear you saying, as long as we hold on to that, if you're Moshe speaking out to the rest of the Jews, and Jews in the land also maybe could hear that speech as well, but as long as they have that care for the well-being of Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, then you're going to keep negotiating, talking, listening, and keep educating till the end. And urge that we do it in a way that is respectful and not dismissive and productive and less polarizing. Absolutely. Okay. All I can say is thank you. Very challenging. It's much easier to think that you know all the answers and that you can tell the other guy or the other woman what they need to do. It's much harder to live in a world, I think, where we're negotiating all the time and recognizing that sometimes the only way we can all stay connected is if we allow ourselves, as Moshe, I think, did, a lot of leeway in our primary commitments and a lot of risk in order to stay in relationship with those who seem to be at odds with things that we care about so much. That's right. But the victorious ending at the end of this book is that all 12 tribes are in and part of the narrative, and they're sticking together with a common destiny. So stick with it, and it might work. I have perfect faith. It's been working for 3,000 years. God's going to keep with us. All right, everybody. Misha's promised it. Let it be so. This is definitely the most optimistic podcast we have done in this series, so I'm thrilled. So, Misha, thank you very very much for the optimism, the insight, the text reading, and the challenging takeaway, especially for many of us who often feel very stuck in our ability to reach across the aisle or reach across the Jordan River or any other things need to be reached across. Thank you so Amen, much. Sarah. Thank you. It's very fun. All right, everybody. Thank you again for listening. We hope that you will continue listening in the future. Thanks again to Mish. Have a Shabbat Shalom. We look forward to uh, joining you for the next Parsha. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.